Today I'm going to be talking with the man, Dr. Dave Kading. Dave, when would you consider like, so now thinking outside the box, because you obviously went, you treated the ocular surface. That was the underlying issue. Would you ever even consider like maybe orthokeratology for this patient as opposed to a traditional kind of, I wear the lens during the day type lens? Yeah, well, I know both you and I are big fans of orthokeratology and I tend to, I tend to reserve ortho-K as a dry eye treatment for those patients who, uh, who, who have such severe ocular surface diseases that uh, wearing contact lens gives them blurry vision throughout the day. So, you know, if she would enjoy the benefits of orthokeratology, of freedom from glasses daytime, uh, during the daytime, uh, and not have to wear soft contact lenses, absolutely. Um, you know, it, and that isn't to say that I'm not a fan of ortho-K for everybody, but I, I tend to want my patients to be capable of wearing a contact lens in their 20s and 30s and 40s. If they can't because of an ocular surface issue, I want to treat that not just switch them from a contact lens that they're in to something different. So your, so your philosophy is one, let's make the ocular surface healthy. And now two, let's discuss the options with the patient and yeah. figure out uh, with that discussion, what, what kind of the best route for that. Yeah. And I think both you and I were guilty of this years ago is that we would always just switch the contact lens, try something different, right? You were a byproduct of our environment, though, Dave. I mean, when you think 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, what diagnostics did we have? What therapeutics did we have? I mean, there was, there was next to nothing. So the only option we had was different artificial tears or different contact lenses. Now we're fortunate because we have more advanced lenses and more advanced diagnostics and more advanced therapeutics. Yeah, yeah. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Jeff Sancino. So, so there is a this kind of... Um, definitive difference from perspectives, right? When, when the AOA is fighting for optometry, we are um, directly and indirectly fighting for quality patient care as well too. We're fighting for patient safety. We're fighting for the, the quality of care that we know needs to be delivered to these patients. And it seems like we're one of the only entities that are, that are really doing that. Um, I mean, share with me what, how you feel about that and how you feel that optometry's role is in, in, in making sure that patients get the best care possible in your advocacy efforts. Look, there, there is no shortage of disruptive technologies out there that are trying to convince the public to skip the trip, you know, to skip seeing an optometrist. Ah, you don't need to go get a contact lens um, prescription. We'll just give you your contact lenses over the counter. And they use all sorts of de deceptive techniques like passive verification um, to try to accomplish that goal. Um, you know, there's no shortage of companies out there trying to push forward technologies that are unproven, untested, yeah. like yeah. online vision tests. And they basically are trying to pull the wool over consumers' heads preying on the ideas of cost and convenience, but not paying any consideration whatsoever to quality. And it's up to organizations like the AOA to repel those forces. Because look, we live in a capitalist society and they are all trying to make money on the backs of, of, of patients. They're trying to insert themselves between the doctor and the patient 
purely to make money. And it's all about making money for these, for these companies. The AOA is the only organization that has the patient's best interest in mind. On today's show, we have Dr. Stephen Ferrucci from Los Angeles, California, talking to us on what's new in retina. So let's, let's get right to it, Steve. Tell us, sure. us kind of like the three or four things in retina that we need to either kind of know about right now or that we should be looking for in the near future. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Mille, and uh, thanks for such a nice introduction. I might have to hire you as my publicist. <laughs> you deserve but, it, buddy. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, so f- as far as uh, what's new, uh, th- there's a lot of stuff new in retina. And like you said, I'll highlight a few. But the thing that I think is really cool is that, you know, years ago when I started talking about retina, we didn't have that much to talk about. And within the last couple of years, uh, and it seems like every year, we have more and more to talk about in the retina field. So it is, it's, it's really, really nice and really exciting. Uh, but there's a couple of things I'm excited about. Um, one of the first things I'm excited about is, is it's been around for a while, but I think there's going to be a little resurgence, at least I hope so, uh, is genetic testing for macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. And it's been around probably for about 10 years. It was a, a company called Arctic DX. They have a test called uh, the macular risk that mm-hmm. it's been around for some time and they've been uh, doing some testing for that. But there's also a newer company um, out there that I'm, I actually am doing a little consulting with uh, by way of, uh, you know, disclosure, uh, but it's called Visible Genomics. It's a newer company uh, based out of Chicago, and they also do some genetic testing for macular degeneration. They, they do it a little bit differently. Um, they have two separate tests. One is a test um, that's a progression test. So you would run that on a patient with, you know, maybe earlier or intermediate macular degeneration, and it would tell you their chance based on genetics and other risk factors, such as like BMI and smoking. Mm-hmm stuff like that. It would, it would tell you their uh, risk for developing advanced macular degeneration and subsequent vision loss over the next two, five, 10, 20, or up to 30 years. Wow. Um, and then, you know, you, you could use that information to sort of tailor your treatment based on that individual patient's risk. So if they're very high risk, you know, you, you might not want to see that patient back, you know, on a yearly basis, which might look like you know, if you just look to their fundus, it might say, ah, I'll see him back in a year. Mm-hmm. But if you run this genetic test and you find the high risk, you know, maybe you don't want to give them quite that much of a leash. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of optometric technology and inventing stuff for optometrists. Uh, tell me about this interest in uh, eye care technology. When did this kind of all come about? Was it while you were still a student or after you got into practice, were you just like, hey, we need something like this, and you couldn't find it? It's actually a little bit of both. I was always one of those kids that loved to tinker around with things when I was a kid, and it was something that I didn't really pursue much when I started looking into paths. I went the healthcare route, but it was always something on the back of my mind, and uh, it was something kind of that was rekindled during my optometry school days. One of my professors uh, was into Silicon Valley, used to work for Apple, was uh, you know telling me about you know, the different things that are happening in, in other parts of healthcare and actually encouraged me to join a hackathon that was happening at a nearby school. And that's kind of when I got the bug. What, what in this hackathon, what did you do in this hackathon? I basically got paired with uh, five people that I didn't know. We asked to find a solution to a problem that existed and then over 24 hours, develop a solution and then pitch it to a group of judges. 
Um, so it was kind of a kind of like a cram session almost for a test. Mm-hmm. At the end of it, you get to present. I ended up winning the hackathon, so I was uh, pretty jazzed about that. Do you remember what that project was? What the problem was? Yes, I think it was uh, along the lines of a company that would help startups essentially get established from setting them up with lawyer consultants and kind of being an ecosystem for startups, basically. Today, we're joined by Ilsa Homan from iLee, and we're going to be speaking about utilizing an iPad to help improve your binocular vision and myopia practice. So some people don't know what, what iLee is. So tell us a little bit about you know running these five practices to getting to the time where you're like, I need a solution and that engineering yeah. brain of yours. What led you to say, hey, I need, I need something for my practice? How, what was the need that you were trying to fill? So I guess when you see a lot of children and you go through the whole BV and, um, and also myopia management, which is something that I've always been interested in, um, there's a couple of pain points. You know, I'm one of those people that want to have as much as possible information. Um, I think that we can make a much better diagnosis if we have a, 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 a broader view on the, on the visual system. But then those four pain points of actually going through all the tests, then yeah. you'd have to take the results, first interpret them, you know, okay, so a little circle here um, on the Randolph stereo um, gram actually means that it's a, it's a 30-degree um, seconds of of stereo, and now you got to think. Okay, well, this patient is how old? We got to, you know, uh, compare it to the normative databases, and, and then you've got your result. Then you still have to look for patterns to see, you know, is there a, a vergence or accommodation dysfunction, mm-hmm. and then you still got to decide on 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 treatment plan. You got to educate your your patient and your parent because they have to make an informed decision in the end. It's still their decision. And then after all of that, most of my patients actually required a visual report, which would then take another couple of hours to do. So needless to say, I really loved what I was doing, but I was very quickly becoming very busy. And obviously coming from a very systematic background, of always trying to make things more efficient, um, it wasn't long before I started making a couple of those processes a little bit more automated. Today, we're joined by Dr. Brianna Rue, and we're going to be talking about Dr. Contact Lens. Yeah. So let's talk about contact lens uh, technologies that are out there. So we think about the, the practice side of things, the seeing the patients, the topographers, those types of equipment. For you personally, what what direction have you moved in towards for your standard soft contact lens patients? Are you, you still utilizing some of the older technology in soft contact lenses or are you daily disposable? How do you incorporate that into your personal practice patients? Yeah, well, I always want them to hear about the latest and greatest from me. I don't want them to see an ad come in and wonder why they're still wearing a lens from four or five or six years ago even. Mm-hmm. So technology is really advancing. So especially with the pandemic and more visual strain and those types of things, and obviously hygiene has become a huge thing. So we've always been a big daily practice. Um, One thing that we know is our contact lens patients are our MVPs. Those are our most valuable patients. 
And if we let that minus 320 something or 30 something walk with a prescription and they end up online, now they may be getting an online eye exam. So while we're all trying to get into this specialty care with dry eye and myopia control and specialty lenses and aesthetics and other things that we want to bring to our practice, where do you find that patient base? You find that patient base from your contact lens patients. And if you let that patient end up online, you've lost the mom, you've lost the dad, you've lost the grandma, you've lost the kids, you've lost your dry eye practice. So we can't forget about the core of these patients. We all see that maybe contact lenses aren't the most profitable thing for that box, right? But you've got to think longer term on what these patients, their lifetime value to our practices. Today we're joined with uh, Ron Yam, and Ron is a uh, is is an executive with a company that I'm excited to uh, kind of share with you called Novasite. Novasite is uh, is a technology that is developing products uh, around all a lot of aspects of eye care that we're using today. So tell us a little bit around the diagnostics, like what what you're seeing. Uh, that that eye tracking can be used, and then what you're thinking in the future that we could be using for eye tracking. Right. So yeah. So let's start with diagnostics. So we do have already a device on the market. It's called the iSwift and being distributed by Essilor Exotica. So we already, um, you know, the, the device is available, not in the US yet. And this device is already measuring seven different, uh, actually running seven different tests around visual acuity, around strabismus. So we're, I would say, the experts of measuring the misalignment of the eyes, both the fixed strabismus, but also the, the, the latent strabismus, what, what we call foria. So your tendency for the eyes to either open up or, or close uh, when you're, once you're tired. Now, um, so this is one thing. Another thing that we can measure is, uh, for instance, the suppression of the brain and stereoacuity. And very interestingly, we can also measure the reading ability. So we let a kid in different ages read a paragraph and we follow the eyes, right? And, and you know that when, once we are reading, we're using a saccadic moving, movement. Like, so that means that the eyes are jumping from word to word to word, from fixation to fixation. So we are measuring those fixations points, and we can tell how fast the kid is reading, what, how large are the fixations, does he has to read back, which we call regression. So we can actually analyze the ability or the quality of reading, and then we can grade uh, according to his level. And if, if his reading is abnormal, in most cases we can say, is it an ocular thing? Is it eye-related issue? For instance, lazy eye or a need for glasses or strabismus, or it's an unrelated ocular thing that could be ADHD or, or dyslexia. So this is, this is on the current device. Mm-hmm. And we have more coming on the next generation device. I'm joined with Dr. Michael Shiglazian, and we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence in glaucoma. I really wanted to get your perspective on several things. And, and the first thing I wanted to, to talk about is, you know, the diagnostics that we have and also the way that we had the ability to monitor progression over time has just advanced tremendously over the yeah. last two yeah. decades. That I, um, is, uh, that's really the, the game changer in my clinical practice, really now 10 years, um, has really been having an image management system where I can review my OCTs, visual fields, and photographs, 
and put all of my diagnostic data, you know, from the college, you know, we've got cornea center, dry eye center, retina and all that. Um, but along with housing all of the diagnostic tests that we do in a, um, uh, a repository, a digital repository, sort of like a PAC system where hospitals would put their MRIs and everything, has been the uh, development of progression analysis software from uh, many of the major players in glaucoma care. And, uh, you know, we are always so focused on, does my patient have glaucoma or not have glaucoma? That's obviously just the first question. Um, and a more important question after you figure that one out is, uh, at what rate are they progressing? Because these are our patients for, you know, decades now. People mm -hmm. are living to be 90 plus. If you're taking on glaucoma patients in your practice, I love you and support you. Uh, let's do more of it because there's a lot of patients out there for us to take care of. And if optometry doesn't do it, then, you know, we don't want to turn this over to some other profession. Um, but the long-term management really requires decent hardware from a variety of manufacturers and the software to do the progression analysis so that you can see change over time, as well as get a rate of progression calculation to know if your patient is what we call a slow progressor in glaucoma, about 80, 85% of our patients, or a rapid progressor, about 10, maybe 15% of patients who have you know, a more severe uh, advanced form of glaucoma. And you can see that by doing enough OCT tests and enough visual field tests, both are essential. We've not replaced perimetry with OCT. And uh, this uh, progression software will tell you how aggressively you need to treat that patient. Today we're joined by Dr. Lynn Jones. We're gonna be speaking about contact lens technology, new innovations, and 3D printing of contact lenses. Talk to me about the future of contact lenses and some things that um, you know maybe we'll see in the next year or 10 years from now that are kind of cool. Well, it's really, and, and thanks for that opportunity, Dave, because it's really interesting to think about some of the kind of futuristic things that we actually have on the market now. I think there are a couple of things that we you know maybe don't appreciate um, that were you know ten years ago science fiction. Oh, you're never going to be able to do that. You know, yeah. one of the things being something like a like the transitions contact lens. So that the the J and J transitions lens, a photochromic contact lens. It's been something that the people have dreamed about for uh, for many many years, and of course now we've had that on the market for a number of years. Drug delivering contact lenses is another mm -hmm. thing. You know, I, I've been working in the area of drug delivering contact lenses since about 2002. And it, it seems like such a great idea. You know, whenever we treat ocular disease, we put drops in. Drops are great because they're nice and easy to, to pop in. The downside is they don't stay around for very long. You know, they no. only stay on the ocular surface for, you know, maybe 20 minutes at most before they drain away. So in order to get a therapeutically relevant concentration of a drug, onto the ocular surface, you've got to really do two things. First of all, you've got to give a concentration that's really too high because you need that concentrated amount on the ocular surface. That results, of course, in both expense increase because you've got more drug in the, in the product than you really need. But the mo more important thing is potential toxicity issues. A lot of ocular drugs that we see, we, we end up seeing some uh, potential uh, ocular toxicity because the drug concentration is just too high solely because it drains from the ocular surface for so long. So right. for many, many years, we, we, we've really tried to have that increased residence time on the ocular surface, and people have done it using a variety of different ways. You know, is there a way of binding it to the ocular surface using things like maybe mucus binding agents? Or typically, we just tend to bump up the viscosity. 
you do yeah. that, vision goes down. So patients don't like using. Yeah. So the concept around actually using a, a drug depot as a contact lens was actually, believe it or not, in the original Victor Lipan. In 1961, Otto Victor when he when he patented HEMA, had in there one of the potential advantages of a contact lens, a soft contact lens, is as a drug delivery device. Can you believe that? <laughs> 